0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today is Maureen O'Connor, New York sex columnist. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. Allison Davis is away this week doing forensic research on some sex-soaked college campus, but as we weep and mourn her absence, we're going to be talking at length with Rachel Hills, author of The Sex Myth. It's actually all we're going to be talking about this week. The book came out in August, but we keep circling back to it and talking about her and her work for one reason or another, so we thought, why not bring her in? Before we get to that, Maureen, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the book and what's been so interesting to you about it, why you keep... Bringing it up and mentioning it. And
1: <laughs> yes, this is my favorite. Um, <laughs> regular listeners will remember I think the first time the sex myth came up was when we were talking about sexual stamina, which I ended up writing a column about. And um, Rachel had these really interesting insights about historically the way sex was viewed, both in terms of, you know, what having brief sex meant or long sex meant to different eras. Um, She had a theory that people actually physically were having sex differently in previous decades based on the types of pressures that they had. And then she looks at the sort of contemporary mythos following sort of the sexual revolution that people began looking at sex as very central to their identities. Although perhaps it would be
2: better to have Rachel explain Yeah, it. totally. Yeah, so what, what is the sex myth, Rachel? I think you've explained it pretty well. I think the sex myth is this idea that the way that we have sex matters profoundly to our identities and how we're valued. So it's the idea that through how often with whom or the way that we have sex that we can tell if somebody is desirable or not. We can tell how well their relationship is going. We can see if they are um, a morally upstanding citizen or a degenerate pervert, mm-hmm. or, or or conversely, if they are this modern enlightened person or a kind of uptight prude who needs to loosen up a bit. It's ultimately this really kind of restrictive idea that leads to a lot of people feeling bad about their sex lives, and I think unnecessarily, because they're not living up to the kind of mode of interaction that's been sold to them within their particular subcultural community.
0: And there is this sort of subcultural element, but it also seems like there's this sort of pervasively cultural thing, which is that we all sort of have a pretty similar idea of what a healthy, positive, um, contemporary sex life should be. And that that ideal, I guess, can be a little, it can weigh on people when they're not fucking in exactly that way. As you understand it, what is the way that most people think of a good sex life? Yeah. What are the things that make that up and...
2: The first, most important part of it is that you should be having sex, so you need to be sexually active in some kind of capacity, whether you're in a relationship and you're making sure that you do it really regularly. And ideally, you wouldn't be making sure that you're doing it really regularly. Your desire would just be so fierce that you'd be like, yes, I want to have sex six times a week. Um, or if you're a single person, you're kind of actively seeking to hook up and find people to have sex, because certainly not going through a multi-month long drought. Even though amongst people I spoke to, it's really not that uncommon when you're single to go through a yeah. multi-month long drought. I mean, even the fact that we call it a drought is yeah. something that tells us about our the <laughs> way we look rain. at it, to right? To go sometime. Like, I, I would notice, say on TV, there was an episode of How I Met Your Mother where Ted, I think, has gone five months without having sex. And all of the rest of his friends are really horrified that like, this intervention needs to happen. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily the most pleasant experience in the world to go five months Mm -hmm. without having sex. But it's not this shockingly uncommon thing that we all have to remark on.
0: Not a drug addiction that needs to be intervened. Yeah. (laughs) yeah.
1: What sort of inspired you to start work on this? I mean, I know I always wonder if it's awkward for you that I, I feel like so many times, you know, all these reviews like open up immediately by be saying, she lost her virginity to age 26. You yes, know, like, thank no, like... you for that. I,
2: I, so re- <laughs> I mean, I don't regret Although granted, that. I just broadcasted it. But... <laughs> <laughs> so Maureen's referring to an opinion piece that I published in the New York Times about a month ago in which I talked hmm. about the shame that I felt when I was younger about not being sexual and um, how that led to me writing the book. And now that that article's out, every time I do an interview, people bring it up. And sometimes uh-huh. journalists feel like, so Rachel, how old were you when you first had sex? I'm like, oh God, I have to answer it because it's already out there. <laughs> but conversely, I think the really great thing about that article is I've never received so many emails oh, from really? people who have related to it and been moved by it of all different, well, mostly Twenty-somethings generally are getting in mm-hmm. touch, um, but anyway, you wanted to know yes. why I wrote the book. Yes. Um, so <laughs> my the fact that I wasn't getting laid and that I felt bad about that in a bunch of different ways was definitely part of it on a personal level. I think so. For me, not having sex was not exactly a choice. It's not like I was literally throwing myself at people constantly yeah. and getting rejected. But in my ideal world, I would have been having sex much younger than twenty-six. Mm-hmm. It was tied in with this idea that sex was not just necessary for the reproduction of the species, but that it was just this assumed kind of monolithic thing. And that if you weren't doing it, and if you weren't doing it regularly, and let's face it, also probably monogamously and heterosexually, that there's something terribly wrong with you.
0: And tell us about what you learned about that spectrum through all your interviews and research. What what did it look like when you sort of peeled the ideal away?
2: The thing is that it varies enormously. Totally. There was an article I did recently for a women's magazine around the book's release uh, where I was asked to chat to 13 women about how often they had sex. And the thing that I found most fascinating is without even trying, I found 13 people with radically different sex lives. So there were a couple of people who had, I guess, more normative kind of experiences. So they were in relationships and doing it, say, twice a week or or two to three times a week, I guess, or they were single and they had a couple of regular hookup buddies and they might have sex every couple of weeks. But then in amongst that, there was also um, a 29-year-old woman who had never had sex ever. Uh, There were people who were single and hadn't had sex for two years. There was a woman who was having sex four times a week, but that was partly because she was kind of trying to reach that benchmark Um, (laughs) There was another woman who was really sexual. Um, She identified as a very sexual person, but she was in a relationship where she could not have um, sexual intercourse with her partner because of the particular disability he had. So they were sexual regularly in their relationship, but they were having sex, quote unquote, far less often.
0: And is, is frequency really the main thing that you talked to the subjects that you interviewed about, you know, or were there were there other normative questions?
2: I wanted to understand what they felt they should be doing versus what they actually were doing. And I guess frequency ties into that bit. Um, It ties into it a lot really because it's very tied up with these ideas of desire and desirability but I think um, ideas around being gay or straight or bi or trans i mean, these things all fit into it as well or um, these ideas that there are proper ways that a man should engage in sex or proper ways that a woman should engage in sex there are also these ideas about what good sex looks like as well which is sex that is orgasmic sex that is um, adventurous and that has effort being put into being creative because of this fear of boring one's partner or of having bad sex, which would make you a bad person. Right. You
1: wrote about, you. there's a section where people talked about the importance of spontaneity. Yes. Which struck me as something I don't think, or I'd never thought about coherently in that way, that there, you know, the idea that like the spirit moves you and then you just start fucking. And mm-hmm. I mean, which, uh, which also seems Particularly, it seemed like most of the people you interviewed were pretty young. Mm -hmm. And that also struck me as something that I wonder if that would feel different if you were, say, interviewing people who are married with children or.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I also think um, it was interesting to me that I think one of the women who was most invested, and I did speak to men Mm -hmm. too, I've focused a bit on women here. But one of the women who was most invested in spontaneity was um, a 23-year-old who was planning on waiting until marriage to have sex. So she was imagining what her future sex life (laughs) would look like, which would be frequent and, you know, amazing and totally spontaneous because you should never plan sex because and I'm even though about she's planning here. the absence of sex that's right? that's true that's a really interesting point but I think this idea of spontaneity is tied up in this question of desire and not just of your desirability but how much you desire your partner mm. or who you're having sex with because if you desire them enough you shouldn't have to plan it and if you don't desire them enough there's this fear that it says that there's something bad happening with your connection
0: it's funny. It's most of the things you're talking about, like I can recognize them as social values and I can sort of like mm. figure out where I am in relation to them. But they seem totally abstract. Spontaneity yeah. feels like so in like so much a sexual value of mine that like I can't even understand that it's something I've been taught by culture. It's like, of course, like spon- spontaneous sex is the best sex. What, mm-hmm. what other kind of sex would be good? <laughs> like the idea of like planning like a sex night seems so dreary to me. You know? Really? That
1: was the one that I totally was like, what? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, and it like took me time that
2: I was like, so it's supposed to be like the pizza man knocking on the door like mm. a what? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more that you, whether you're meeting somebody in which case but then you know often even if you're meeting somebody for the first time and you're going to have sex with yeah. them it's, that's not necessarily spontaneous either i know that there are studies on hookup culture that show that um, women in particular they will kind they will plan to go out and hook up yeah or, i feel like i
1: usually know when i'm gonna hook up even if i know like i'm gonna have a random hookup yeah. i know when the random is gonna happen it reminds me actually of that um, phenomena now of everybody talking about the Netflix and chill as though you need to pretend like you're only going to watch a Netflix and just hang. And then whoops, we ended up having sex. I was talking to a friend like that and she's like, I don't understand this at all. Why can't people just say let's fuck? Like, why do you have to pretend something else is going to happen?
0: Even less euphemistic things like asking someone to come back to your place to have a drink. It's mm-hmm. like, why do you? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well,
0: <laughs> like, there's no mistaking that request you know
1: but you sort of just has to pretend for some reason yeah
2: i think it helps people deal with fear of rejection so talking true, about hanging out at someone's house and watching netflix i thought to myself oh god that's so australian <laughs> um back when i was living in australia like that's totally how you would flirt with people or try mm-hmm. to pick them up you wouldn't say do you want to go on a date or do you want to have sex you would say Oh, I'm going to be in the neighborhood next Sunday. Do you want to go for a drink? You
1: also wrote a lot about sort of the ideas of performance during sex. Mm -hmm. And I found it very fascinating the way people just... I mean, I think the sort of instinct would be if somebody is doing something out of a sense of performative, they have to, Mm. that that's a very negative, oppressive thing. And yet... I do also think that there's an element of performance that people actually just straight up enjoy, which was something I think that was recurrent both in your book and sort of made me think about it.
2: And I think, I mean, I think that's true Mm. for lots of people. And I think that's not just uh, a performance within like an act of sex. It's also a kind of social performance that Mm -hmm. we participate in when we talk about sex.
0: Do you find yourself sort of rewriting your own sexual experience when talking about it in public? Are there ways in which the things you tell your friends and your associates differ from the way that your sex life actually is led?
2: Sometimes. And I'm definitely not the only person who does this. Uh, Since writing the book, I notice it a lot when my friends do it as well. But in terms of what I do, it's kind of ironic because it's counter to what we're led to expect women do when it comes to sex, which is this idea that women will downplay the number of partners that they have. And I notice that through inference, I'll often imply that I've had more partners or more sexual experience than I've had even though I'm out in the New York Times now. I'll just talk about sex in a generalized kind of off-the-cuff kind of flirty way. And I will take single or a few number of experiences and make them sound larger.
0: And you find that people in in having those conversations with you treat those abstract comments as a sign that they're just like... So many encounters, to, like, you couldn't even possibly list them or whatever?
2: <laughs> well, it's the way that most people talk about sex, generally. I mean, so some of the conversations that we'll have casually around sex will refer to specific encounters, but often, generally, we'll be talking about experiences in a much more general way. It's what everybody does. Them. They'll say, I like this, or I don't like that, or I found X, or I found Y.
1: And you'll go, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> (laughs) Um, or you'll reflect back with your experience but because you're not being specific people will just assume that you Like it must
0: have taken so many years and partners for her to come down and realize (laughs) that those were her preferences Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly I wondered if you could tell us a little bit sort of allow us to zoom back and talk a bit about how I mean we're obviously living in the culture you're describing with the particular mores and particular ideals that you're that you wrote about but when you feel that sort of cultural era began, what preceded it, what brought it about, and um, if there were other eras in our sexual history that you've looked at that seemed particularly interesting or weird or worth talking about.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because in the book I do kind of lay out this kind of history of how things have changed. So I talk, for example, about how around the time of the Industrial Revolution, this idea of the self as a kind of distinctive thing as compared to other people arose and how the kind of symbolic importance in sex seemed to be attached to that as well. And this idea of nakedness and privacy uh, came about then, and I talk about how that contributes to the sex myth. And I also talk um, about... the sexual revolution, which I probably should put in quotation marks because it's not like everything literally changed in the 1960s, uh, about how that and everything that followed it uh, in some ways showed less... It wasn't so much about a change in behaviour, but it was also about a change in ideals. It's a shift from the middle class trying to distinguish themselves from others by saying, look at us, we're more moral and we're more restrained when it comes to sex because we see it only as an act of love and reproduction, to a kind of resistance to that, because that is an idea that hurts a lot of people, particularly women and queer people. Um, and, you know, basically anyone who doesn't want to have sex in a monogamous, married kind of missionary position kind Kind of way, and then kind of an attempt to shift that into a culture where if that hurts people, we say, Well, then a positive sexual culture is one in which people are allowed to have sex in whatever way they choose, and instead of saying sex is bad we say sex is good. But then I'm also kind of, I don't know that that kind of straight line of history really works so much. So if you think about, you know, a century ago, it's not like our ideal then was for people not to be having sex. Uh, That wasn't the social ideal either. In many ways, it was quite similar. Uh, People were still expected to be sexually active and to, there was a desire to have good sex as well and pleasurable sex. Um, It's just that the proper place for that sex to happen was considered to be within Marriage, but it suddenly wasn't cool to be a 25 year old spinster or bachelor any more than it's cool now to not have had sex. I always try
1: to wonder if there is any universal sexual value that exists today because we're so used mm. to this idea that you know everybody does it the way they want it as long as you know it's two adults consenting and having fun, and actually. It seems to me that, you know, like say in the past, sex maybe have more of a role in organizing society, that that's how you know that this is a family because the mom and dad had sex with each Mm -hmm. other and created children or whatever, that now it seems like it's really individually driven and then all i could think of was just the idea that you're supposed to really like it it's a burden yeah there's a certain burden to it and i think that's also why i say the level of sort of rage over the notion of whether or not a woman is faking her orgasms or the moment of you imagine the rage of like and you never made me come being like the worst Mm. thing you can say to a man imagine a man saying that to a woman
2: Yeah, Yeah, that I think would be even more powerful.
1: But, you know, if that were to happen, I think as soon as you say that, I think the assumption would be, well, there was something wrong with your penis then. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's just me being horribly oppressive. I
2: don't know. I think of a story that didn't end up in the book. Uh Um, Again, talking to a woman and she she personally never had an orgasm. Mm -hmm. Um, And. She was a little bit bothered by it, but she's like, ah, oh, sex is good for me anyway. Yeah. But she told me the story about the one time with her ex-boyfriend when he couldn't orgasm uh-huh. and how she just could not let it be. He's uh-huh. like, it's fine. It's fine. And she's like, no, I have to make this happen. So I uh-huh. think that within that kind of heterosexual gendered kind of context, women can take lack of male arousal mm-hmm. or lack of male desire or, you know, male climax mm-hmm. um, even more personally. I think you're right that a big part of that ethic is that we must like sex. Just before I came down to meet you guys, I read an interview with myself Mm -hmm. in the Globe and Mail in Canada, and one of the things that it said, it said Rachel Hills is not anti-sex, so it's not that Rachel doesn't like sex. And this is true, I'm not anti-sex, and I don't not like sex, and I would like people to have lots of orgasms, that would be great, Um, (laughs) presuming that they want them, Uh, but... I thought to myself how even people who are anti-sex or people who want to control other people's sexual behavior, people who believe that certain types of sex are bad, whether they're anti-sex work, whether they're um, anti-pornography, or whether they are, you know, there are so many people who are anti-same-sex relationships. Those people wouldn't consider themselves to be anti-sex Yeah, nobody does. And they'd be so offended if you said that to them. Well, I suppose it's like nobody self-describes
1: as a racist either. Yeah, exactly. As I'm, like, looking at this, whether, like, our only value is just, like, pure enjoyment, is it acceptable for one party to enjoy sex a lot less than the other? Like, does that strike us as something inherently bad?
2: Well, who's us? I don't know. And, and when we say our only <laughs> value, maybe our sitting yeah, around the table true. is a shared value. Actually, I also found with the people that I spoke to, and I think this is a kind of shared generational value as well, um, there's a value of non-judgment. Yeah. So one of our values is whatever you do is fine, so long yeah. as it's consensual, right. and so long as you're enjoying it. Um, so consent is probably a shared value as yeah, well there. Definitely. But I think this self-perception of ourselves is not judging other people is kind of a key
0: What is the role that you see of porn, of dating apps, the things that have genuinely changed in our sexual culture over the last, say, 20 years? Because, you know, there are ways in which we're still living in the era of the sexual revolution and the values that that gave us. But there are also a lot of ways in which things have changed pretty dramatically pretty recently. Mm. I wonder what you think. um, I mean, technology in particular, but the, the things that technology have brought have... Done for us,
2: I did most of my interviews in 2012, and one of the things that most surprised me was how little online dating came up in conversation. Although I imagine it might come up more so now. On the question of pornography, um, that was definitely a kind of huge moral panic at the time that I was doing the stories, particularly in the UK where I was living at the time. There were kind of endless stories about how porn were, was perverting children and kind of making children sexually active at earlier ages than they were before, and also and sometimes in
0: new ways and in less consensual right? ways yeah. and in
2: new ways, etc. And I find that whole narrative really problematic. And, dare I say it, anti-sex as well. <laughs> um, I also It also appears to be, based on the research that does exist in academia, not to be so much supported by evidence. I noticed, particularly amongst the younger people I spoke to, so, who tended to be older teenagers, so say so 17, 18, 16, etc. Pornography did partly shape their expectations. So, you know, people would watch porn to find out how sex worked. Right. Which... You know, as flawed as that is, it's also really logical. And um, yeah. probably
0: better than the options that we might have had, you know, a generation ago when we were, like, looking at drawings and talking to our health <laughs> teacher. Yeah,
2: well, I was reading yeah. teen magazines personally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Because I did not have sex until later. I, do, I was able to use the internet, not pornography specifically, but, I say, think I'd chat seen boards and things like that. I think i
1: seen porn pretty well before I had sex, definitely.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah,
2: and I'd say even for our... But our parents probably did. No, yeah. You know? I don't know. Like they probably saw Playboy or Penthouse, Maybe like and nudie pictures. Like that. Yeah, exactly.
1: Or it like seeing like what a hard dick looks
2: like entering an aura <laughs> mm-hmm. fist? Like that is so specific. Do you just say
0: there's nothing like seeing what a hard? No,
2: but I think I'm kind of talking around the porn issues. So to try to get to the point, I think. Porn is an influencer, but I think it's remiss to describe it as the major influencer. I would see porn as just another kind of vector, if you will, that sends sexual messages. And porn also will echo the messages and the fantasies and you know, sexual expectations that are already in society rather than just creating it. But that sits alongside you know magazines and TV shows and non-pornographic movies, et cetera.
0: Right. Rachel, before you go, maybe you could read us a little passage from the book, one of your favorites.
2: Sure, absolutely. This is a passage from my chapter called Freaks and Geeks, The Trouble with Normal. And it looks at how our perceptions of what's normal and desirable when it comes to sex have changed over time. And uh, previously in this chapter, before I come to this point, I've been talking about kind of the folding of LGBTQ experiences, some of them at least, into the mainstream on the less trendy side of the non normative divide lie people like Nin, a 23 year old sex positive, polyamorous trans man living in the northwest of England. None of those qualities make him unusual within the progressive, sexually open scene he inhabits. I live in a community which is pretty comfortable with alternative genders and sexualities, he explains. But people like Nin are still largely invisible in most parts of the media, which I feel I need to add is something that has changed a little since 2013 when I was (laughs) writing that. Gay and lesbian people may be normal now, but trans and genderqueer people are still treated as puzzles that need to be solved. And while no-strings-attached sex is expected among people of a certain age and class, monogamy is still assumed to be the desired endpoint of any relationship. Even within Nin's own group of friends, there are norms and expectations to grapple with. Because I am honest and open about my preferences, people expect me to have far more sex and in far more interesting and exotic ways than I actually do, he observes. Mentioning that I spent the evening with my partner and two other people who are part of my poly group can lead to speculations of orgies, rather than us sharing a meal and watching movies. When I sleep in a friend's bed, I now realise that I need to clarify that we didn't have sex. And while I will happily give people condoms and lube when I am being activisty. The assumption people take from that is that I have a great deal of kinky, penetrative sex. If being normal means having your sexuality removed from discussion, people like Nin, who still exist at the margins, are seen only through the lens of their gender and sexuality. There's this idea that because you're kinky, you're vastly experienced and up for anything, Nin says, jokingly referring to what he calls the land where people have more or more interesting sex. And I like this quote so much, I'll just read the whole thing before I wrap up. People who believe in this land and believe they are outsiders to it don't want to offend people who live there by saying the wrong thing, he says. They realise that a lot of what they might have heard about could be wrong. But they assume there must be something interesting happening. So if you try to ask people what they expect of you, or why they jump toward thinking that sleeping over at a friend's house means some kind of kinky orgy, you end up with a weird miscommunication, where they are trying to allude to this big secret they are sure you know about and demonstrate that they are accepting of your wild ways. At the same time, you actually had a Disney film marathon and don't think that there is any big secret, because even if there is a mysterious land where people have more or more interesting sex, you certainly don't live there. After all, your experience is just normal for you.
0: Rachel, I love how you pronounce
2: condoms. (laughs) I've noticed this, that the the non-American condom pronunciation is always so adorable. Yeah. Yeah. Condoms.
0: That's it for Sex Live. Rachel Hills, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, Maureen, thanks for you too.
2: Uh,
0: (laughs) Our producer today is Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Zachary Dinerstein, Henry Malofsky, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. For Maureen O'Connor and an absent Allison Davis, I'm David Wallace-Wells. We'll talk to you next time and thanks for listening.